0: Blog Talk Radio. <coughs> Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and the Garfield Firm, serving all fifty states with news and analysis Questions as always tonight, and some really good news to report about a recent California appellate decision. Hi, Charles Marshall, here and again for Neil Garfield, and today is Thursday, July twenty sixth, two thousand seventeen. Uh, good afternoon, and those in, good afternoon to those in the western time zones, and good evening to those in the east. And uh, Bill Patelow is also joining us tonight, and he's going to have some very good insights on this recent appellate decision. And the appellate decision we will be getting into is, is known as Gulliuk's versus v. PennyMac Holdings out of the 5th District Appellate in California. I am broadcasting live from San Diego, California, and we are brought to you uh, this, this afternoon again on the West Coast and the evening in the East to you by the Living Lies blog, GMTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amco, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in Florida. This show is specially brought to you because of donations and the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, and that's our main number. Pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Now, I had mentioned a minute ago that it's July 26. Checking my calendar, we're actually on July 27th, and this is an important important date because we're able to discuss this very important appellate holding here in California. Again, the case is, is Guliak's versus PennyMac Holdings, and you will be able to see some details about this already um, on the uh, the Living Lies blog. And again, I have Bill Patelow with me uh, this afternoon to discuss this uh, this very important holding. Now, to break this down in its kind of most fundamental terms, this appellate court looked at the usual characters. You've got Chase in here all over the de- defendant side on this. Penny Mac, who is a servicer that is, on a lot of these uh, cases in California that end up in court. And unfortunately, their behavior more than warrants that. And the court lo- did look at securitization, and they passed on that. It's, it's actually a somewhat nuanced, complex analysis that's beyond the scope of the radio show today. However, they did find very relevant chain of title breaks, uh, which are, are actually sending this case back to the lower court. I mean, this is, this is a very powerful decision, and it's got very broad implications potentially uh, for the months and years to come for foreclosure borrowers. Now, one of the things we want to see happen, and I think it's important that I use this radio show for this purpose is we want to see this this decision published so right now this decision is not going to be published and we have until august 1st which is tuesday to challenge that i and a number of other foreclosure attorneys in california and elsewhere are going to send letters and otherwise contact the appellate court here to really do a push to get this decision published and I think I'll also be sending emails to attorneys around the country to facilitate this effort. It will make a big difference in terms of the utility of this case. Uh, Bill, great to have you back on the show again. Thank you very much. Good to be here, Charles. And if you could get right into the meat of this decision, um, again, this this appellate court did find that Kinney Mack, should have stayed in the case and that there were relevant breaks of title if you could tell the listeners about about that whole situation uh, I think we'd all appreciate that. Well sure
1: I mean this chain of title case right here and it's really um, refreshing when you see a, a court and a high court uh, really taking a good hard look at the chain of title and focusing on that And and here you have a situation where uh, it was a Long Beach loan, very similar to as if it was a Washington Mutual Bank loan, that somehow uh, went through. Or the claim is, is that it went through the receivership with the FDIC. At which point, uh, the first thing you see popping out on the other end of that receivership is a an assignment in most cases from uh, Morgan Chase, essentially uh, as attorney in fact for the FDIC, assigning these loans to itself and then they try often to proceed and move forward by selling uh, the uh, beneficial rights into the deed of trust or mortgage to some other entity like PennyMac or a, a U.S. bank as trustee of an LSF9 trust, for example. And they try to pass it forward and uh, try to kind of hide and conceal um, going back and and delving into that chain of title of what happened prior to the FDIC receivership. So here in this case, they do an uh, an analysis of the um, Washington Mutual Bank uh, receivership in this case, and they found um, in this opinion that, and they state right in uh, there were three reasons um, that they were having issue on this chain of titles, that unspecific assets and liabilities were sold by the FDIC to JPMorgan Chase. Now, my uh, opinion on this, and having researched these loans for a lot of uh, years and um, having just testified in a case out in Connecticut here this past Friday, um, is is that all of these Washington Mutual loans or any of these loans that uh, claim to have gone through the receivership with this PAA all have defective chain of titles for a number of reasons. And now that you have this court looking back and saying, look, there's nothing in the evidence here in the chain of title that describes in detail just as, you know, how this loan proceeded from the beginning to where it is now is very critical because this has been a a point where the a massive presumption has been made for years and continues to be made for years that uh, Chase essentially got, you know, everything related to Washington Mutual. They got all these assets, even though there's nothing specific to point to any asset. Um, So it's very uh, critical here that they're taking a hard look at that. And when you do that, um, the amount of evidence now that has has come to light uh, clearly shows that uh, the loans never went through that PAA. There's a disconnect there. Um, and that presumption is a false presumption. Um, a key uh, stipulation that came out, I, and we've, uh, Niels posted this, and I wrote the article on it, involves the Fox case in California recently in June, where the attorneys and counsel for J.P. Morgan Chase and U.S. Bank, N.A. as trustee in that case, stipulated that there were two investor codes that belong to the subsidiaries of Washington Mutual Bank, and that's the investor code AO1 belonging to uh, WAMU Asset Acceptance Corp and 369 belonging to Washington Mutual Mortgage Securities Corp. So the other stipulation was that they admit that the loan was never purchased uh, from the FDIC, and that's very critical because this fact pattern is identical in hundreds of billions of dollars of these loans that Washington Mutual Bank originated, um, and so when you now, uh, I would I would recommend it. Anybody out there who's litigating a case where they are or uh, Chaser or someone is claiming it came through that PAA and the receivership, uh, a, a simple demand and request for the loan transfer history shots in discovery are going to reveal that one of those two or both of those investor codes are going to exist. And uh, if that's the case, then that's clear evidence that this did not
0: go through the PAA. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really good analysis. And I think you've well encapsulated some of the finer details to how this decision came down the way that it did. Uh, And in terms of, you know, the classic way that an appellate court breaks these legal issues down. What's good about this decision, uh, you know, in in a more general framework is that it makes clear that uh, Penny Mac did not show that they had received their servicing rights through a proper chain of title. And it, the decision literally, points to just what you were talking about, Bill, which is the, the break occurred essentially when Chase tried to maintain that they had cleanly taken over as, as the successor and in interest for Washington Mutual Bank. And of course, they've been able to finesse that in so many different cases through simply take, making the, the, the very g- generic claim that they took over there. Their, their rights and liabilities when Chase took over Washington Mutual back in the TARP days of uh, 2009, 2010. The reality, of course, is that every loan has to be specifically assigned, and the assignments to successors and interest are su- all supposed to be clean as well. It's, it's the great I, – I would say w- one could still use the word outrage of our age that so many of these types of chains of assignment have been left, left alone and let through by the courts. But here they did show, shut this down because the break was so patent. And because there were so many laws and rules that were violated in the break. And this means that, that Penny Mac could not have taken proper title. um, And that they could not have, stood with the recording of the notice of default, the notice of trustee sale, the substitution of trustee to the sales trustee that they that they recorded. the court makes clear that all of those events having occurred after the chain of title break, those are all void and this is an absolutely beautiful case from the borrower 's point of view um, you know one of the one of the issues is going to be the implications of that. I'd like to get into that with you, Bill, shortly. Did you have anything else to add in terms of the nuts and and bolts of of what went down here?
1: Well, I, I, you know, I want to add that those subsidiary entities, um, you know, the PAA states that the definition of assets were uh, that were those that were included with the subsidiaries were not a part of the PAA. But, whether or not they want to argue that Chase acquired the subsidiaries or not, the reality is is that those two entities that you know the Senate congressional panel came back in their findings of fact, and they've i mean they literally laid out hundreds of billions of these loans that were originated by Wamu through these two depositor entities and If you understand what the role of a depositor is, it's not an entity it's a it's a pass through conduit entity that was used to purchase and then almost simultaneously sell the the uh, underlying assets to an issuing entity trust in exchange for the certificates so the problem here is is even deeper in the chain of title because with the identification of, of these subsidiary entities in the chain of title just from a depositor perspective their role was to deposit it into some issuing entity trusts. Here we don't have any information or disclosure other than the fact that there's hundreds of billions in these issuing ent- entity trusts, but we don't have the exact identity of which trusts uh, these loans were assigned to. And you have to remember that the authority given to service a loan or do whatever it is on behalf of an issuing entity trust is derived from its trust instrument, the governing document, which is typically the pooling and servicing agreement. And so when they come in and say, we're servicing this loan on behalf of who and on behalf of what entity, all of that's being hidden and concealed. And so, you know, one of my points of uh, arguments that, that, that I like would like to make is that um, even by Wells Fargo's own admission as a, as a large trustee on behalf of many of these issuing entity trusts is that in their uh, marketing brochure that I've uh, referred to often in some of my articles, they make a statement that the thing that most borrowers fail to realize about conduit loans is that once a loan has been securitized, they are no longer working with a quote-unquote lender anymore. And in this analysis here, in this case we're talking about today, um, they're, they're specifically, you know, asking the question as to what lender had the right to do this, okay? And if if, if and if there is no technically a lender creditor who can step into the shoes of a lender and, and the deed of trust and the mortgages or the deed of trust says that a lender periodically can substitute trustees, I mean, we have a real disconnect here with the authority to proceed and start filing. I don't think, in my view, Charles, and you certainly can uh, uh, spell this out from, from your lawyer perspective, but from from where I'm looking at it, is that these fatal defects in the chain of title and the fact that these entities are now dead, and a whole other issue is that Washington Mutual Bank routinely admitted in its SEC filings that uh, on these on many of these trusts that their business model was that they were not going to endorse notes and they were not going to issue assignments for these loans they basically admitted that they were not going to document a chain of title so therefore by by their own choice and the investors knew this they we we don't have a chain of title anymore on any of these loans so how they can pick up the baton and suddenly uh, get the courts to just overlook all of these fatal issues in the chain of title to get to where they need to be. Now that that looks like we may have an opportunity here to to really get in and, and blow these uh, things apart in terms of the story and the presumptions.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good analysis, Bill. And one one piece of this case that relates directly to what you're talking about is okay there are there there are in these cases and of course in this case all these recorded documents out there I mean this court is clearly saying those recorded documents there are disputed facts in them and those facts have been disputed by the plaintiffs clearly and therefore this this case was not a proper uh, case for summary judgment by the way this case was disposed of through a motion for summary judgment. That means that the, the plaintiffs here had actually made some progress in the case. They'd gotten past the, the all too invariable demure that you see in these types of cases in California. So they'd actually gotten past that, but on this motion for summary judgment, which if, if this had not been granted for the defendants, meaning the motion for summary judgment, So if the borrowers had won this motion for summary judgment, this case would have gone to trial. And I can guarantee you this case was going to trial. It was probably even set for trial. Typically, these motions for summary judgment are not brought and not on calendar and argued until there's a trial date. Now, they could be argued before that time. They could be filed before that time. But that's the very typical scenario, and I suspect that's what happened here. And one of the most powerful aspects to this decision is the court makes clear that what I feel like I almost have to jump up and down uh, metaphorically in my pleadings when I put this in, in my pleadings related to these types of cases, um, what am I talking about? I'm talking about request for judicial notice. And Bill is going to know how so many courts, particularly in California, wipe out these cases based on doing just a complete, cursory, summary, conclusory uh, review of these recorded documents. Because what will happen in these cases in California, and I believe this is quite common in non judicial foreclosure uh, states uh, generally is that the defendants will submit for judicial notice a number of the recorded documents. I mean, and we sometimes attach those documents to our complaints. I'm doing that less because of the way the courts interpret the significance of them being attached. But nevertheless, clearly when the plaintiff introduces these recorded documents, it's to, it's to show that look at this document, it's false. Look at the language. Here is where the language is is inaccurate. Here is where it creates a cause of action for our side. Now, what the courts have done is turn this whole issue around and say, no, the recorded documents and the facts of recording show that the nonjudicial foreclosure process is being followed properly. So even when I have increasingly not attached uh, documents, recorded documents to my pleadings. The other side will 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 file them. And the other side files them either way anyway. The defendants almost always have a separate opposition in these hearings, whether it's a motion for summary judgment or whether it's a demure, and that again is a motion to dismiss. Usually you see those early in a case, federal or state. Um, but regardless the request for judicial notice what will happen is the defendants will file those they'll show the recorded documents they'll show the substitution of trustee they'll show the notice of default they'll show the notice of trustee sale sometimes there'll be a trustees sometimes there will be a trustee deed upon sale so all these recorded documents are referenced in these defendants opposition we clearly state on our side the court can only take notice of the fact that the document was recorded. I mean, simple logic, even apart from the complexities of law, simple logic says, you know, it's, it's disingenuous, and actually the law doesn't really allow you on our side to say, oh, um, I refuse to, to acknowledge that this document was even recorded. I mean, when we object to the request for digital notice, we do it on this basis, and it's very clear. It's very factual. We say, yes, we acknowledge that the document was recorded. Clearly, it's recorded. There's a recording staff there. I mean, we can see that on the exhibit. However, and fundamentally however, the bona fides, the facts averred in these documents, that's precisely what we challenge. Our pleadings are full of the legal argument and the legal factual accounting of why the documents are are essentially wrong, that they're not factual, and that they create legal breaks of chain of title, and they create other violations of law. I mean, we discuss all of this in the pleadings. This is what foreclosure attorneys invariably do. Um, I mean, I should say, if they're doing their job, they absolutely will get into the the nuts and bolts of all of this. And, you know, at the end of the day, the judges all too often in these cases, they just sign off on the, on the recorded documents. They say, well, yes, we'll, we're going to grant the request for judicial notice um, because, yeah, these documents were recorded. And by doing that, even when we're challenging, as the law requires us to do, the actual facts within the recorded documents, They should not be – they should only request a judicial notice for purposes of acknowledging like we do that, yes, the documents were recorded, but no, they do not take judicial notice of the facts. And that's the proper disposition of how requests for judicial notice should be handled. In this court, uh, this is the best uh, kind of – explication of this i've ever seen in an appellate ruling this court has a separate section where they talk about exactly this issue how yes sure the court should and can take note that the document was recorded but the facts are legitimately disputed therefore they can't say that that this is the end of the story because again what judges will do is they'll look at these recorded documents they'll look at the request for judicial notice and they'll say yes granted And that basically wipes out the case. I mean, once you've essentially signed off on the recorded documents and said, yes, they're presumptively valid, then the case is over. That's why the other side brings this stuff in so often. I mean, uh, Bill, why don't you speak to this issue? We still have a few minutes left, um, that I think you'll be able to cover what you've seen with the abuse of requests for judicial notice.
1: Well, yeah, I mean – there's, you know, the old saying from my police days, you know, uh, in, in the criminal side of it is fruit of the poisonous tree, right? Um, many of these documents, because uh, they can't get over that hurdle to go back in time and retroactively correct a chain of title when you have all these entities that are no longer in existence and are dead, it's the, the chain of title is is fatally defective for me because again you can't go back and breathe life into Washington Mutual bank and have everything come back into existence, so they have to start somewhere, and typically those documents begin with that self serving uh, assignment as beneficiary to itself, which we know is false that's that's clearly a uh, the, the truthfulness of these documents so the underlying transactions and the facts that that are in the embodied in these documents. Are simply not true, and and that's what uh, you know has to be challenged. Um, the age-old question comes back all the time, and it does even in the case that I was just testifying in or whatnot. That the judiciary repeatedly comes back with the question is, as, as look, I don't see anybody else standing in this courtroom today. And therefore, um, why is no one else coming forth to uh, if this thing was sold into some other issuing entity trust? I don't see anybody else here crying foul. And my response to that is very simple. And I've pointed out that in under Dodd Frank, in the 15G filings that many of these securitizers are required to file on a quarterly basis with the SEC. You look at WIMSIC and Asset Acceptance Corp. as those depositors, for example, they have a duty to report fulfilled and unfulfilled repurchase demands and put-back demands that they're currently experiencing. And now those dollar figures are in the billions, multi-billions of dollars worth of Washington Mutual loans that are currently the subject of repurchase disputes. Now, those investors where these loans sit are currently getting paid each and every month while these disputes are in place. So there's no incentive or motivation or anything for them to even come forward to te- even enforce anything against a homeowner at this time. And I say, yes. Okay. I'm just going to
0: pause there because we're, we're coming up to the, the end of the show, but as always appreciate all your analysis. It's always very detailed and very timely. Um, I am going to get into in a future show soon, The implications of this decision, I mean, that's almost a show in itself, and we we will raise that issue soon. Um, The implications of this type of case are always going to be both greater and lesser than any of us would like. I'd like to say that it's a complete game changer. I don't believe it will be, but I think it will help our side. And we get this case published, and I think the help that it will provide will be – a lot. So again, uh, I'm going to coordinate with Neil to get some more information about about publishing this case on the blog. Uh, we only have until August first to do a big push to get this case published. And so uh, I'm sure Bill will be back
1: uh, himself
0: on a future show. I will be back next week. Neil will be back soon. And we'll be discussing this and other matters fairly uh, fairly shortly. Certainly, starting with the next show, which will be next Thursday.